this morning, I want to focus on these miracles that happened in the desert because they seem peculiar to me. I found things I haven't found before. The phrase that is sticking in my mind is that in Exodus chapter 16, 10, where it says, while Aaron was preaching in the desert, the whole assembly, it's one of the few times that that phrase is used to describe Israel. That literally means congregation. It's almost like they're having church in the desert while Aaron is Preaching in the desert, the whole congregation is gathered, and as they look toward the desert, there is the glory of Yahweh emanating from the cloud. Man checks into a economy hotel in Gary, Indiana. Uh, and it's, it's in the middle of the winter. He's been three or four days on the road. His body is tired. His soul is weary. He gets into the room and walks across to the window to see what will be his view for the next 24 hours. And it looks out over an industrial yard full of trucks and loaders and shipping containers and set against the backdrop of another gray Indiana winter. He thinks to himself, this is why this room is cheap. <laughs> there on the table in front of that window, a little formica table, is a bouquet of fresh flowers set inside of an old jar with a note that says, Look at this instead of that. And it's signed, the last occupant. Maybe that's something of what's happening here in Exodus 16. Not all of it to be sure, but maybe part of it is the people of God beaten down by the desert, weary in the soul, have come to a place where they are told to look at this instead of that. I want to come back to that image in a moment, but first I'm going to come down on, on your level here and recapture some of what we've talked about in the last few weeks. I promise this won't be long. I do this because throughout the week, I get texts or emails from people saying, so what you're saying is, and sometimes that's what I'm saying, but sometimes it is not what I'm saying. Someone said after the first hour, I think what I'm hearing you say is, I went, hmm, that's on me. So can I try to clear up some of the mud that I've kicked up? That'd be all right. Stay with me. Stay with me. We're going to put on the screen everything I drew on the board last week, except the part about Sabbath, saying that our journey is like that of the Israelites in the wilderness. We are not moving from just sin to forgiveness. We are moving from bondage to freedom. 
All we've done in this chart is simply identify the symptoms of bondage and the symptoms of freedom as if to say there are signs of both of these probably in your life. The first thing I would like to clear up is that this might, that is that this is not due in Exodus to something that the Israelites have done. This was done to them. And as a result, they have begun to adapt the culture of their surroundings. This is all they've known for 400 years. So the problem with Israel is not that they're rebels, it's that they are broken and they are in bondage and salvation is all about getting them out. Now, if you think of it in that way, this might be a more attractive way to speak to people about the gospel today. Very few people today will admit that they are lost or that they are sinners. They may be, that's just not the language the present culture is speaking. But virtually everyone will admit to being anxious or being a bit weary, maybe having a scarcity mentality or being too pessimistic most of the time. All we're providing here is a way to get into the conversation, to start where the conversation starts, rather than feeling like we have to drag somebody out of the conversation we're already having onto the only one we know how to have. There? As such, this is also a good way to speak about the Christian condition. Christians who profess to be wholly sanctified find it very hard to confess that there is quote-unquote sin in their life. It seems to defy everything they say sanctification did for them. So they either abandon the concept altogether or they fake it for the rest of their lives. This is simply a way to say, I'm not talking about sinning and confessing, whatever it is, we're talking about symptoms of bondage that have clung to you because you live in the culture that you live in. My dad used to call them stick tights. When you walk through the woods, these little burrs, you know, they like stick to your clothes. Well, nobody goes into the woods saying, I'm gonna try to get me some burrs. It just happens to you when you walk through the woods. Sometimes it's things you did, and sometimes it's things that the culture has done to you, and you have learned to live in a certain way because wherever you live, it's probably Egypt. Pharaoh's probably in charge. Are you there? So I'm thinking, then I'll let it go. If there are not habits, physical, tangible practices that we can do that symbolize we are breaking way with Egypt and we are leaning hard into a new narrative of freedom. You there? So last week I said, 
to break the narrative of anxiety, you do the last thing you could think you would do, and that is take a Sabbath. If you're running behind, if something is due and you're not ready, everything in you says work harder, but the narrative of freedom says renew your soul in the presence of God. That's a physical, tangible, weekly act that we can do. I wonder if the way to break the narrative of scarcity is with generosity. If you don't have a lot of stuff or you're afraid you'll run out, your instinct is to say, I better be careful, I better hold on to what I have and, 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 and hoard it and then ration it. But maybe the practice of giving to others without expecting anything back would start to break that power of scarcity. You give your way out of scarcity. You don't save your way out. There? I wonder if the way to break the bondage of fear and paranoia and prejudice that says someone that is not like me is a threat is to just welcome strangers. And the more different they are, whether in ethnicity or even more so in our ideology, to welcome ideological strangers is even harder. But I wonder if that table where we gathered, if that was a regular practice of immersing ourselves in people not like us, we would start to break the chain of fear and paranoia. I'm not sure about this, but I wonder if the practice of Eucharist, serving of communion, where the priest holds the bread, pronounces the benediction, blessed art thou, O Lord God, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. There is enough. When everything in us is saying there is not enough and we might run out. And if we run out, what then? But I just wonder if this little ritual that churches that we do every month, if that's not a way to break the narrative of despair and pessimism. There, most of all, I want you to know that I say these things not in order to stir up anxiety. I say these things because I think the anxiety is already there. All right? I'm just naming it. That's all. Now, we're going to go into the message. Are you ready? Come on, man. I know this second hour you're tired, your coffee is worn out, but I'm going to need you at the end of this message. I'm warning you now. I'm going to, at the end of the message, I'm going to ask you to say things to the other side of the congregation. And I'm going to have the other side say things back to you. And if you don't get a little Pentecostal on me, this is, mm, this is going to be hard. So I just need you to shake it off. 
You got a few minutes to do it while I set you up. And then I want you to read like a man or a woman on fire. You all right? Yeah, four of you are going to read. Come on. If you don't read it for yourself, read it for people next to you because they'll need you to hear it. Say it. All right? Are you ready? Now let me get into the message. In the book of Exodus, there are many miracles. The miracles, best as I can tell, take place in two places. One is at the sea. The other is in the desert. And the miracles that take place at the sea and in the desert are different miracles. The one at the sea is loud. It's unmistakable. It's as if God is shouting, I am the Lord. The ones in the desert seem quiet. One could almost confuse them with an act of nature. Some scientists have. The ones at the sea, you never see coming. God almost never says, here's what I'm going to do. He just does it. And when he does it, even the Egyptians believe in him. But in the desert, a different pattern emerges. God starts to tell us what he's going to do before he does it. And then he does it. It's like God is trying to tell us things in the desert that he couldn't tell us at the sea. In the last few weeks, I've been reading through the prophets and the Psalms. And what I've noticed is that the prophets and Psalms both refer to the Exodus, you guys, dozens of times. But what I never noticed before was that they refer to the miracles in the desert as often as they refer to the miracles at the sea. The prophets talk not just about God splitting the sea. They talk about God feeding us while we're in the desert. And if you were to create two columns, those references to the miracle of the crossing and those references to the miracles in the desert, you would find that the columns are just about equal. In other words, the Psalms and the prophets are just as prolific about the other as they are the one. And that's when the lights went on. Belden Lane says geography is important in the Bible because it's a visible form of theology. Things happen in places because they could only happen 
in those places. And those places give meaning to the things that God is doing. So I started to think about what it was like as a follower of God to just come out of the sea still drying off when he sends us into a desert where it is hot and arid and dry and lonely and relentless, unforgiving, brutal, endless. One gets lost in the desert as easily as one could get lost in the sea. It's the place where the insane went for asylum. It's the place where kings that were deposed were sent into a prison. It's the place where prophets were sent to school. God raised up prophets, not at the sea, but in the desert. I started to think maybe there are things that God does in the human heart that can only be done in the desert. Maybe these things are indispensable to our growth and to our stamina. And having looked around at spirituality in America right now and seeing a number of people, how easily they quit, how they can't stay with it, how the moment something gets hard, they just release people that are looking for swift and sudden answers that solve all of their problems. I start to wonder if more of us have shaped our way of life around the sea than in the desert. Because in the desert, you learn toughness or you don't survive. In the desert, Three miracles occur in Exodus chapter 15, 16, and 17. Right out of the blocks. People are still drying off from the sea and God releases them into the desert. And we read in rapid fire succession three episodes where God encounters his people. And in all three episodes... He tells them what he's going to do and then he does it. In chapter 15, he turns bitter water to sweet when Moses throws the stick into the pond. Who heard of that? In chapter 16, he rains down bread from heaven and the people go out and pick up frosted mini-wheats all over the desert as much as they want. And some gathered many and some gathered few, but at the end of the day, it says when they cooked it, everybody had exactly what they wanted. Whoever heard of such a thing? In chapter 17, he split a rock and a river Thousands of gallons of fresh water came from the base of a rock and fed over 
a million, two million people. It's a lot of water. From a rock, it bled a river. Whoever heard of this? Are you with me? Then I started to notice a pattern. In all three miracles, the same thing happens in exactly the same succession. And the pattern goes like this, has five movements. Relax, these are not points. We won't be here till Christmas. I want to just give them to you quickly because they're going to set up the point. In movement number one, the people of God are in a crisis. We are in a predicament. We have run out of something that we need. It is gone. It might be water or food. It's work. It's money. It's options. It's friends. It's time. It's stamina. We had it, and now it's gone. Everything that we knew about the past has changed because the landscape has changed due to forces beyond our control. Now we must learn to adapt to an entirely new environment or we are gone. Second, this causes the people of God to spiral into despair. It starts as a form of disenchantment where they realize in the desert that maybe God isn't who they thought he was. He took us through the sea, but now he seems to have abandoned us. And if he loves us, then where is he? And this sense of abandonment or disenchantment with their God and with their religion leads to grumbling and the grumbling to complaining and the complaining starts to affect the morale of the whole congregation. What was a few people in chapter 15 becomes the whole assembly in chapter 16. Before long, the entire church is grumbling and they're spiraling quickly into despair in which... They see everything as the end. It does not matter what else is happening. They start making bold predictions about how this is going to end. And they usually pin those predictions on the leader. Something has gone wrong. Somebody has failed us. Somebody must pay. It's his fault. We're all going to die. <laughs> and when you read this, you're thinking, wow, there's got to be three or four good explanations for what's going wrong right now. But how have you jumped so quickly to the end of your life at the first sign of trouble? And how is it always the leader's fault? I wonder in the second stage if they're really mad at God, but nobody wants to take him on. So you just find whoever God has put in charge and you let them have it. Which leads to three. In the midst of this chaos and despair, God utters 
a word. He makes a promise. He makes an outrageous claim. He says something will happen that could never possibly happen. And nothing we know about science or theology aligns with what God says he's going to do. In the promise, we hear a word that is not from this world. We couldn't dream this up in a thousand years, and yet it directly addresses the conflict that we feel. When we hear it, we can't believe it, but we can't stop hoping it's true. God says in the promise that he will do for us what we cannot do. He will give us what we don't see coming. He will provide what we can't explain. And it will happen not just once, but it will happen every single time. And when it happens, it will be exactly what we needed. which leads to four. Somebody will listen. Not everybody. Maybe not even most, but somebody will do what he says. Somebody will pick up a stick and dumb as it may seem, throw it into the pond Somebody will go out and look for bread in the morning. Somebody will walk to a rock with a staff in his hand and he will strike the rock. And reading it as we do after the fact, I think we always read into this a kind of bravado, like maybe Moses took his staff walking toward the rock and he sort of, he didn't walk, he strutted a little bit. And when he got there, he said, watch this. And then he struck it and waited for it to bleed. Mm. We might be giving him too much credit. If he's like the rest of us. He was sure God said it, but he couldn't believe it. But he took a chance. He figured it was a risk worth taking. Somebody had to play the fool. Maybe things weren't as they appeared. Maybe God was in fact next to us and we didn't know it. What if it's true, he thought. And with a great deal of hesitation, maybe he went to the rock <laughs> and tapped it. I'm making this up. which leads to number five. Every time when somebody obeyed, things changed for the better. The bitter water became sweet. The bread came down from heaven. The rock bled a river. And everything that God said he would do, he did. And the prophets and the Psalms pick up this language and they graft it into a rich liturgy. Hundreds of years later, when the prophet Isaiah would say to the people on the eve of exile, their own journey into the wilderness, the prophet would refer to the exodus and he would say, 
water will gush like a stream in the desert. Burning sand will become pools of fresh water. God will lead the blind down paths they have never known. And God will pour water on him who is thirsty. God will pour his spirit on their children and his blessings on their children's children. And the people going into exile found those promises as outrageous and incredible as the ones in the Exodus. And yet, that is exactly what God does. Now is when you say, amen. All right. Oh, man. Are you warming up? When the prophets pick up this language. They speak of it often in the present tense or in the future tense. They say God is not only doing these things right now, he will do these things. And they come to us like words that are just not informed like some wild-eyed, pistol-waving prophet has no idea the circumstance we're dealing in. But every time the prophets speak, God will say them again. And the people grow tired of these things. In Exodus chapter 16, in the miracle of manna, in the desert, our daily bread. We have a story that fits exactly into this narrative. And it goes like this. We are in a crisis. We have run out of something that is essential. It might be bread or water, hope, work, money, stamina, years, options. The horizons are getting closer. Our bodies are tired. Our souls are weary. We begin to spiral into despair. The symptoms of which are in unwillingness to try anything, to believe any narrative other than the one somebody has already told you was true. I don't know where you get your narrative. I don't know how y'all interpret what is happening to us in this world, 
But when God utters this thing, we have a tendency to line it up with that narrative and ask ourselves whether or not, mm, wait for it, what God is saying is true. Has it not occurred to us we have it exactly backwards? We have spiraled into ideological tribes and then we have labeled people with other narratives to be a threat to the God of democracy. Don't panic. There is nothing wrong per se with democracy, but there is everything wrong with the way believers today give it almost supernatural qualities. I hear Christians talk about democracy like it's the reason we are free. We are free because God has set us free, period, full stop. We have a good life if we have it, not because the system works, but because God has used the system to nourish and feed some of his people. That's my only point. So when you go to write an email, we've clarified that in advance. In our despair, we have become cynical, mostly about our leaders. Something has failed and someone has failed us and there must be a culprit. Why must there always be a culprit? Why can't it just be the desert? And then, in the midst of our despair, I hear a word. God is going to do what only God can do. God is going to bring us what we don't see coming. God is going to provide what we couldn't possibly explain. Nothing we know about science or theology can explain the thing that God is going to do. None of it makes sense, but God says he's going to do it. I will rain down bread from heaven. And when you eat, you will see the glory of the Lord. And the people of God roll their eyes until there is bread from heaven. And usually, none of them say, oh, I was wrong. You know that? They just stop talking until the next crisis. But inevitably, for somebody will believe it. Not everybody. Maybe not even you. But when God utters a word, somebody will believe it. Somebody will grab the stick and throw it in the pot. Somebody will start looking for the bread that was always there. 
somebody else will strike the rock with fear and yet the rock will bleed a river. Circumstances will begin to change and God will utter the promises that you can only hear in the desert. One, I'm with you. I'll sustain you. I will take you as my own. Two, I will change you, transform you, redeem you, and I will turn this desert to a garden. And three, I will send you. I will empower you. I will release you. I will make you a light for all the world. One of those is too hard for you to believe this morning. You either don't feel seen or noticed or valuable or loved by God. He's too far from you. And if someone were to stand up and say a promise from God that he is right with you, it would, it would be as hopeful as it is outrageous to you. Others of you are wrestling with the same tired sins that you've wrestled with for decades. And God will utter a promise that he will change your nature. You will do by desire the word of the Lord. And you can't believe it. You're tired. You've sort of made peace with the desert. Others of you are so tired, you can't imagine God using your little life, you call it, for something much bigger, something national, something global, perhaps. God is going to increase your platform, and you're just trying to get out a life alive. One of these is hard for you to believe. So, here we are, church, you and me, in the desert, a congregation. And while the preacher drones on about bread from heaven, the skeptics roll their eyes. The poverty, the loss, the injustice, the pain that the desert's taken out of you, it's got you. And yet, beyond the preacher, just beyond the preacher, is a cloud 
I, the only one, sees it. And there in the cloud is the fire of God emanating. Now, which do you believe? Is it the desert? Or is it the cloud? (laughs) 